Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, hooray for you coming out on such a cold day. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, and I want to welcome you all to our February Conservative Women's Network. I also want to give a special thanks to our co-host, uh, Heritage, uh, Bridget Wagner. We've been doing this every month for years and years, and it's more fun every month, yes. isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and now I'm happy to introduce today's speaker, Lisa Daftari, correct? Perfect. She's going to give a timely talk about the human rights abuses happening around the globe. Lisa is an award-winning investigative journalist focusing on foreign affairs with an expertise in the Middle East and counterterrorism. She's currently a contributor for Fox News, providing exclusive reporting on vital developments in the region. She makes regular appearances on television and radio, and her commentary and analysis have been featured on CBS, NBC, ABC, The Washington Post, and NPR, to name just a few. Lisa produced a documentary film about an Iranian underground political movement and was invited to show her film in Congress. She's frequently called on to give briefs and expert testimony for government and private ent entities. And Lisa has worked for a number of think tanks in Washington where she's written exclusive reports for the Pentagon and other government groups. Before joining Fox, Lisa worked as a producer in the investigative unit at NBC in Los Angeles, where she helped break the story of the bomb plot in which an Islamist prison gang planned to bomb several prominent sites in LA. Lisa holds a master's degree in broadcast journalism from the Annenberg School of Journalism at the University of Southern California, where she received a Presidential Merit Scholarship for her studies. In her last year of graduate school, Lisa was selected as a fellow to the Carnegie and Knight News 21 Investigative Journalism Initiative. She completed her undergraduate degree in Middle East Studies Spanish and music at Rutgers University with the highest of accolades. She's fluent in Persian and Spanish, is an avid opera singer and a pianist. Please join me in welcoming Lisa Deftari. Good afternoon. The topic I, I selected to speak about today, um, I figured we'll touch upon a lot of what's going on in the headlines, um, but feel free to jot down any questions you think of, and I'll um, be very happy to answer them after. Sure. Maybe we can bring these in closer. My mother recently shared with me that on the day I was born, she cried. These weren't tears of joy over the birth of her first daughter. These were actual tears of pain and more so fear, fear that she would not know how to guide her daughter, not know, to ha not know how to navigate her through the same battles she experienced as a woman in defining the boundaries between personal and professional, in defining her priorities with family and personal fulfillment, in defining the compromises that she knew her daughter would inevitably have to face. In other words, my mother was apprehensive about preparing her daughter to fulfill all her roles in life as a first-generation Iranian-American, as a daughter, sister, wife, and mother, as a professional, as a woman, as a human. Someone who is not only living a dual identity, but with identities that are dueling. And for all us women, this is a battle we face throughout life. But as we struggle to define, question, reevaluate, to map out the goals and paths we want to take in life, 
We watch as parents in Africa grapple with whether to send their young daughters to school for fear that they should be kidnapped or raped by militants. As women in Iran bravely took off their hijabs to pose pictures on Facebook, but to then get acid thrown on their faces. As the women of Egypt took to Tahrir Square to show the world that they no longer would accept a male-dominated society, but then were told to go back into the kitchen. As the women of Saudi Arabia fight to do nothing more than to drive and go out alone. And more recently, as ISIS has dominated the headlines with stories of how they have taken local Yazidi and Kurdish women in Iraq and innocent Syrians to be sold or used as sex slaves. These are the realizations that make one question how frivolously the term war on women is thrown around these days. To talk about birth control, wage gaps, abortion, discrimination, and while these topics are an important part of societal debate and growth, they certainly are not the issues that shape and define this country. As an Iranian-American woman whose family was displaced on the eve of an Islamic revolution in Iran, I'm concerned that these are the issues used in making political points, used in culture wars, used to unfairly and outrageously equate the wrongdoings of our government with that of the countries of the Middle East and North Africa. We're no better than them. We have binders full of women. More than my cultural perspective into the region is the reporting and research I do every single day creating the patchwork for my own binder full of women. Hundreds of real-life horrific accounts I have covered talking to the women of Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Egypt, interviewing the young Kurdish Peshmerga fighters in Syria and Iraq, hearing from the young women in Gaza who share their grievances about life under Hamas, interviewing the family of Miriam Ebrahim, the Sudanese woman who was imprisoned because of her Christian faith, or writing about Gonsha Gavami, the young British woman jailed in Iran after watching a volleyball game. I can surely tell you, this is the real war on women. The real war on women is about the millions of women throughout the Middle East and the continent of Africa who are forced to undergo genital mutilation. In 2013, 3.6 million women were mutilated in these parts of the world. In Somalia, FGM is at 98%. That means nearly every single woman. The real war on women is about the courageous women of Saudi Arabia who have on numerous occasions stood up against the driving bans, facing arrests and assaults, lashings even. It's about Lujain al-Hathlul, the 25-year-old arrested while campaigning for the dri driving ban to be eased, and her friend, 33-year-old Mesa al-Amudi, who was taken into custody after sticking up for her friend. Both refer to the country's harshest terror courts and held in custody more than 70 days before being released this past week. The real war on women is about the many religious minorities who stand firmly behind their faith and beliefs in Muslim-dominated countries, Christians, Jews, Baha'is, and others, facing minority taxes, imprisonment, persecution. The real war on women is about the intrepid women like Asiya Bibi in Pakistan, a poor field worker who has been on death row for almost five years after being accused of insulting the Prophet Muhammad. Her real crime? She's a Christian who touched the same bucket of water that Muslims wanted to drink from. They accused her of tainting it. The real war on women is about the women of Iran who cannot dress as they want, dance as they want, attend the schools or obtain the jobs that they want. 
They cannot file for divorce, even from a violent spouse. And even if they do, custody of all their children will go to the husband. In the court of law, testimony of two females is equal to one male. Simply put, the value of a woman, half of that of a man. The real war on women is about Rehana Jabari, the 26-year-old Iranian woman who defended herself against the rapist and then was executed after already serving a seven-year sentence. And yet, Rehana was one of the lucky ones. Imagine a world in which a woman hanged for defending against her rapist is considered lucky because there was actually coverage of her case. The world got to hear about her story in an attempt to save her. I interviewed Rehana's mother twice from Iran, once as her daughter was on death row where she begged the international community to speak out and raise awareness about her daughter's case, and again, only two days after her daughter's execution. I want to share with you a few excerpts from my interview with Shole Pakravan, Rehana Jabari's mother. My arms and legs were trembling, she said. I told Rehana, please don't be scared. This must be a mistake. It's impossible, I told her. Rehana, this is impossible. It's illegal. They can't do this. Your case is up for reevaluation, and none of this makes sense. Rehana replied to her mother, my dearest mother, you can rationalize this however you'd like, but they're going to take me to kill me. Her mother continued, just imagine, you wake up one day and they tell you, we will execute you tomorrow. And not even 48 hours after her daughter was hanged, her mother told me, I need your help. I am asking all the countries in the world who defend human rights and women's rights to investigate Rehana's case in international courts. Maybe other courts can prove my daughter's innocence. The government's message to the women of Iran was that you cannot defend yourself in the face of rape or violence or else you'll be executed, she said. Her words continued to echo in my mind. You cannot defend yourself or else you'll be executed. I think about all the cases that don't get media coverage. I think about all the innocent women and others secretly executed in Iran and other places where Sharia law is implemented, even before their families hear about it, let alone the mainstream media. This is the real war on women. And there are a handful of cases that we do hear about. They become sensationalized, they become celebrities, they become iconic, and often rightfully so. Recall the case of Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani girl who was, who was shot point-blank in the head for speaking out against the Taliban when she was only 14. You'll undoubtedly remember that she then won the Nobel, Nobel Prize last year at age 16. Malala is indeed iconic, but why is there just one? How about the courageous Malalas that we don't hear about? She's absolutely brave and worthy of celebration, but I assure you, in a world where women are marginalized daily, denied access to education and healthcare, jobs, religion, and all variations of freedom, her story is not the only one. And some might ask, why should Americans care about what goes on in those countries? How about tolerance for other practices, respect for Sharia law, for cultural and religious differences? Well, the answer is that it's not just contained to that part of the world. It's here. It's in Europe. It's in our cities. It's in our places of work. It's in our schools. Tolerance is respectable, but ignorance about these truths is irresponsible. Every year, about 26 women are killed in the US by a relative 
in the name of family honor. You may have heard about some of these honor crimes. On January 1st, 2008, teenage sisters Amina and Sarah Saeed were shot to death by their own father in Louisville, Texas. It later came to light that these murders were premeditated <clears throat> as honor killings, as retribution for the older sister, rejecting an arranged marriage to a man in Egypt. And both girls had American boyfriends. In 2011, an Arizona judge sentenced an Iraqi man to more than 34 years in prison. He ran over his 20-year-old daughter because he claimed she'd become too westernized. Yes, Sharia law is here in the US, and this too is a war on women. So the first question becomes, why doesn't the media cover more of these stories, both here and abroad? And the second, what can we do to stop it? A few different factors go into media coverage, mainly the news cycle, what's in the headlines for the day, to access to these types of stories, and ability to report on these stories and to give them the proper contextualization. In the case of the real war on women stories, I'd like to believe that there is, in fact, a growing appetite and interest on both sides of the political aisle, but it isn't enough. This isn't a right-left or conservative or liberal issue, mainly because it doesn't have to be, especially in a post-partisan era where finding common ground is the only constructive way forward. Americans on both sides are missing these stories. And for as long as we refuse to see human rights, national security, and counterterrorism as nonpartisan issues, we will all miss the point. As this nation prepares for another presidential election, there is fear that while ISIS, along with many of these other horrific stories, are now dominating the headlines, the right will il illustrate the poor foreign policy record of the left, and the left will push aside these harsh realities with an agenda to portray the right as anti-female and heartless, refusing to help women with abortions and birth control. And maybe it's not because that it's the truth that they believe in, but because they're further exploiting a bigger problem in this country, where young people, popularly referred to as the millennials, are more deeply moved by frivolous topics than by the real ones that will actually shape our future. Education and awareness. Those are our only hopes in continuing to raise the profile on these stories of these victims and to do our best to stop these barbaric practices here at home. I want to share a little personal story with you. A little over two months ago, I was honored by the Iranian Women's Organization in Los Angeles. And at the very last hour, realized that the gala where I would have to go to accept my award was being held at the Beverly Hills Hotel. For those of you who are not familiar, this is a beautiful, iconic hotel on Sunset Boulevard where celebrities gather uh, and symbolic of everything Hollywood, except that it's owned by the Sultan of Brunei, a leader who's imposed Sharia law on his own people. But the fact that Brunei marginalizes and persecutes women, minorities, and homosexuals has not been lost on Los Angeles' Hollywood communities, many of whom have publicly boycotted the hotel. Even celebrities such as Jay Leno, Ellen DeGeneres, and John Legend have spoken out and supported the boycott. When I realized the gala's venue, I realized it would be difficult for me to attend both as somebody who's written about and spoken extensively about Sharia law and human rights, but more so because I had specifically covered the Sultan of Brunei and the boycott 
of this hotel on air at Fox News. Instead of canceling, I realized this could also be the opportunity to raise awareness and to educate those in attendance about the crimes of these types of regimes. During my acceptance speech, I called out the Sultan of Brunei and saw the unique opportunity of doing so not from the picket line or from a tweet, but from right inside his own hotel. My speech was picked up by many publications, including Fox, The Free Beacon, some Hollywood trade magazines, and even the Huffington Post. But most importantly, I realized my, the effect of, the, of words when I saw the statement by the board of the Iranian women's organization who had held their gala there every single year, promising to change the venue of their event next year. What I've come to learn in my work is that people do care about people. Politics might get in the way and personal agendas may try to deter, but in the end, work, we must work to educate and expose the truth, regardless of it, if it's thousands of miles away or right here in our own neighborhoods. I would like to end here by dedicating my comments today to all the women of the world, particularly the ones who have everything to fight for and very little to fight with. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Um, just very moving, um, hearing that list. Scratching the surface. Really. Right, right. We have time for some questions. Um, do we have microphones yeah. here? Yes, we do. Okay, and if you would um, give your name and your affiliation, if you have one. Um, I see one down here in the front, and here's another mic, yes? And I'll, I'll let you call on people, okay? Oh, sure, go ahead. Hi, thank you. I'm Penny Starr with CNS News. I noticed that you mentioned Sharia law, and I've attended and reported on other events where Sharia law is identified as the part of the is Islamic religion that is causing the extreme violence and terrorism in the Middle East that you've spoken about. Is that the specific part of Islam that uh, is behind ISIL and um, Al-Qaeda and the other terrorists? Right, so Sharia law is Islamic law as, a, as, a, as a taken from the Quran. Uh, what ISIS claims to be doing is to take the Quran and its teachings and Sharia law um, on a very literal, in a very literal way. What others, more moderates, claim is that they've hijacked and basically taken advantage of what, so I'll give you the, the best example and the, the word that's probably the most, um, the, the most important word in all of this is jihad. So obviously jihad is looked at as a holy war by ISIS and other groups. Um, again, I, I want to point out something that cannot be even stressed enough anywhere, whether it's in, in, at Fox or CNN or MSNBC. The mistake here would be to focus uh, on ISIS as the only terror group, the most extreme terror group, the most dramatic terror group. They're not. They're not. We're taking our eyes off of all the other groups in, in the region and really looking at, let's say, Al-Qaeda as, as a competition group of, no, the, the competition would mean that they, the end goal would be different or that they're vying for, for different things. They're not. They're vying for a caliphate and regardless of who gets it, they, they will all celebrate the day when it happens. Um, are they competing for funding and recruits? Perhaps. But I think uh, they have enough funding from, from for, you know, legitimate places like Qatar all the way to, obviously, the bad guys and, and groups um, 
that that are willing to to fund them. So, <clears throat> regardless, the Islamic terror, as we know it, claims to take its teachings and its guidance from the Quran, which is Sharia law. Any other questions? Yes. Wait, wait for the mic. Thank you. My name is Wendy, and I'm just a good conservative here today. Um, do you think, you know, I, do you believe that there are really cells right now in this country, uh, that the day is coming when these type of horrific acts will happen in our malls, our coffee shops, um, and are we truly naive to what's going on in this country today? Okay, so I wish I had better news for you. I always feel like the doomsday girl, but What's going on is in different parts of the world, whether it be Europe, the US, Latin America, there have been individuals that are obviously affiliated with, interested in reading up on terror groups, the ideology of terror, all of that. Now, we call them uh, homegrown terrorists. We call them lone wolves. Again, another distraction, because these individuals are now finding ways to link up with these larger networks. That becomes, you know, that's where you see uh, episodes such as what we saw in Paris, what we saw in Copenhagen, what we saw in Sydney. Now, the issue is that ISIS is winning militarily in terms of propaganda, in terms of fear factor. Anyone can make a homemade black flag and start waving it, whether you're in New Jersey, in Texas, in France, in Latin America, wherever you are, and people will panic because they do have that type of effect. Uh, so I guess the, the, well, the realization now is that these individuals have existed for a long time. Now you can look at very different parts of, of, of the problem, whether it's immigration, and there was a report this week that we let in more, more than 500 Syrians and we intend to let in more, refugees, right? That's from the fallout of the Syrian civil war. Now are these people suffering and running from a very bad situation, yes, but we have no way of vetting whether these Syrians are in fact well-intentioned Syrian refugees or if they're affiliated with ISIS. And the bottom line then becomes, do we have an administration that we can trust that will put our national security before these refugees? And until we have a way of vetting, we have to, we have to stop that. Uh, second, uh, social media, the way that they're becoming you know, recruited at a, at a, at a faster s uh, pace than ever. Um, you know, ISIS, again, gets the, the, the spotlight is on ISIS because they, they're Jihad 2.0. They've figured out a way to really um, make this bombastic, bring to the front line fabulous videos that look like Steven Spielberg had a hand in and rap videos and um, Twitter pages that are, are really effective. I mean, they have a fantastic social media team uh, that's really um, out there and, and is able to connect with these individuals. Uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Now, whether they will coordinate something on the ground here, um, I believe that these foiled attacks are giving us some confidence in that our counterterrorism measures have been, have been increased uh, to fit the, the level of threat that we feel at this point. Um, could it be higher? Yes. I mean, I walk into, you know, I, my grandparents were in the hospital last year, and when I would walk through without any, anything, it would scare me because they don't have rules, they don't have laws, there's no assumption that they will respect, you know, 
some establishments such as you know a hospital or a school. I mean, look at what they did in Pakistan, the Taliban, to those children. So it, it is scary. It's definitely eye-opening. But again, it's uh, the mistake of local and federal law enforcement officials to really um, start, you know, leaving uh, some sort of a distinction between the, the lone wolves and the individuals and the homegrown versus the larger network. It's all a, a threat that's really um, meshing together at this point, unfortunately. Yes. Thank you for coming. I'm definitely enjoying what you've had to say. My name is Bonnie Fight. I guess I, as I was listening to you, two things struck me. And the first one is, obviously, our Constitution was written by men who believed in religious freedom because they were persecuted religious groups. Many, that, that's where the founding colonies came from, people fleeing from religious persecution in Europe. And so they said, well, we want to guarantee religious freedom. And so the the followers of Islam can can just run with that and have all kinds of permission in the name of religious freedom, which of course I know if we were to able to talk to these men who wrote our constitution and say, by the way, did all this kind of stuff apply to Islam and, and what's happening today? You know that they would be saying absolutely not. They're probably turning over in their graves thinking we gave them religious freedom and, and look, look what's what happened. Um, and so, you know, how do you fix that without taking away the religious freedom of the rest of us? And then number two, I, it, it breaks my heart in the last 20 years to see how political correctness has put a gag on the mouths, and you work with broadcasting, so you see it all the time. And so because of political correctness, um, the editors in the newsrooms want to you know, doctor it up so you sound right when you come over the airwaves, and because of political correctness, we as people, we won't listen to something that's not politically correct, so we'll turn it off. And so you've got, you've got it on both ends, and so how do we fight political correctness? Because we know the political correctness is helping the bad, Absolutely. bad side and the religious freedom. It's like we've got two problems here that, that should have been, well, political mm -hmm. correctness has always been bad. But, I mean, you know, so how do we fight <laughs> these two issues, I think, that are definitely generating a lot of the problems? Yeah, you know what's interesting? I'll just, I'll, I'll set something up for you. Why do we have to be concerned with political correctness against these bad guys, these Islamists, these jihadis, when Egypt and Jordan aren't. I mean, did Jordan stop for a moment and say, we're, we're Muslim, they're our brothers, we're not at war with Islam. Well, obviously they're not at war with Islam, it's an Islamic country. They didn't stop. They said, you killed one of our nationals, it becomes a national security issue, we will retaliate. They didn't think twice about it, they didn't wait for global approval, they went ahead and they did it. They're part of the coalition, they didn't wait for the coalition. Egypt, same thing. They're a Sunni country. ISIS is a Sunni group. They're definitely not at war with Sunni Islam. They killed 21 of their Coptic Christians. They retaliated. Now, as Americans, have we seen any type of national uh, pride in the sense of we will defend our Americans? Foley was beheaded. Kayla Mueller was killed. I mean, It's, there's no room for political correctness when they're at war with us. We don't even have to define. I mean, when you watch the president, 
make his talks on Wednesday, I believe it was. This week is such a blur. On Wednesday. More about apologizing and stepping on eggshells at the Islamic community. That's a slap in the face of the Islamic community. It is. Because if he has to stop and address, well, you're not part of the problem. Of course they're not problem, part of the problem. The Jordanians and the Egyptians and the Saudis also agree that we should kill ISIS. Why should he stop to differentiate? Right? So I think this whole, you know, the, the political correctness is, is really backing us into a corner where the UAE, the Saudis, the Jordanians, um, the Egyptians clearly are far ahead of us in terms of understanding these threats. France is really leading the coalition. We're really dragging our feet. We don't want to be a part of it. And what does that do? That weakens our national security. That increases the chances of a mall attack, an airport attack, a hospital attack. So this all goes hand in hand in really weakening the position of Americans. And it really does start with this human rights abuses. It, it all goes hand in hand. You've got to look at, obviously, the military, obviously, the finances of ISIS. But when we don't take a stand against religious persecution, against women being abused, against you know, these, the, the, these females being abducted by Boko Haram, against the Pakistani children that were killed in that school bombing, then what are we saying about our own standards here at home? And it's really, it's political posturing, but it's the position, the leadership, the exceptionalism, it's not there. Here. Yes. Give her a mic. Yeah. Hi, Faith McDonald from the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Um, in terms of the war against women, uh, I also see the radicalization of women that's taking place as part of that war um, and wondered if you could comment a little on that. I've even heard that there's almost like points that jihadists get if they're able to turn particularly Christian women um, and, and even uh, the daughters of pastors and things like that. So when you think of the, the white widow from Ireland, mm -hmm. it, the El Shabaab massacre, um, that's one I can think of. So the issue of, of um, women in the Middle East, I'll, I'll talk about two parts here. With, with the Islamic State, their uh, larger goal, obviously, is to create a state, right? And what do you need for a state? You need a population. For, in order to create a population, you need ISIS families and ISIS babies and ISIS females and ISIS males and ISIS puppies, I'm sure, and you're going to just create an Islamic State. So that's, then you have the concept of honor in the Islamic and Middle Eastern cultures, Eastern cultures in general. You have the concept of honor. So if you tell someone your mother, that's like the worst thing you can say to someone, right, of that culture because women are so both revered and protected in a certain way, ironically, which is why they can't drive and they're hidden in a lot of these cultures. Um, so the, the conquest of a woman becomes then the goal, like I, I disrespected your culture and your religion because I got your, your women. Thirdly and separately almost from this is the Arab Spring and the change of the role of women in that society, meaning uh, women were outpacing males uh, in the university in their applications and it became very obvious in places like Iran, in places like Lebanon, in places like Egypt. So 
revolutions happen not because people dream of democracy and of liberty and all these lofty, beautiful ideas that we like to think of in our democratic lens. They happen because people can't get jobs and they can't afford dinner and they want they have a PhD and can't get that job that they want and they look over the ocean and they see America and we have iPads and we have iPhones and we have all this stuff and they want them too. Women in these societies have spearheaded a lot of these um, revolutions of sorts. It's a, like an enlightenment for women in the region. So you see the Kurdish Peshmerga women leading the front lines in a lot of these. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful stories in all of this. Some of the, the best interviews I've done are with these courageous, courageous women who really take it upon themselves to defend their people and they're <clears throat> just amazing. They're on the front lines and fighting and they have no fear. Um, other than that, we see, again, a, a changing of the role of women despite the fact that a lot of these dictators and dictatorships won't allow it, meaning you can contain them to a certain point, but these women are still evolving, whether they're reading at home, they're reading to their children, or, or whatever it is. So we do see that, that change in that uh, growth as well. So these two are basically coming together of sorts. You have the women, who are, are their, their role is changing, and they're becoming more aware. Then you have the women who are then applying that to, how can I serve my religion? Well, if my husband's a jihadi, why can't I be a jihadi? How can I serve? And that's the guilt on which they, they put, whether they're recruiting here in the United States. They promised them jihadi boyfriends. They promised them young men who are so brave that they are warriors and they're going to kill themselves in the name of Allah. And this sounds crazy to us. 2015, you're sitting in Washington, D.C. It sounds just ludicrous. But they do believe this. When you go to the mosque, when you're part of a, of a community and you want to feel important and relevant and you want to give back to the cause, they recruit you. And you say, what can I do? I can be an ISIS girlfriend. I can be an ISIS wife. I can be an ISIS mom. It's as simple as that, unfortunately. Yes. Hi, thank you for coming today. Um, my name is Gabrielle. I'm an intern here at Heritage. Um, and you discussed one of the ways in which we can help in war on women, in the war on the real war on women, such as like seeking truth in our neighborhoods. Do you think you could offer um, some additional ways that we can, we, I guess, as students too, can make a real, not just a feel-good effect in this war on women here in the states, here in our communities? I think um, as a student, that's a great question. As a student, a lot of what you can see in terms of um, changes here in our nation, that you always look to the campus as a microcosm of that change. And when you talk about political correctness and tolerance going and becoming detrimental to where this, this nation is going in terms of understanding uh, global threats, um, you, look at, you look at the campus. Uh, before, I, I was, when I was even a, a student, um, I would go to a lot of uh, campus functions undercover um, and attend a lot of these um, Muslim Student Union events, just to see what's going on, and um, whether it was in New York or LA. And you'd see state schools, especially, where they've cut back on so many of the classes. Students can't graduate on time because they don't have the budget to provide enough classes for these students to attend. But then they give um, classrooms and auditoriums, and police security costs money, uh, campus security rather costs money, and they give them these big spaces to have rallies, and they bring speakers who incite jihad on campus. 
And I can name you dozens of examples from UCLA, UCI, to Columbia. To if you see this on your campuses, if you hear about this, you have to report it. This is regard, I mean, it goes, it's your tax money, it's your tuition money, it's, you know, mines that are being washed on campus, and it's the easiest place to do so. I remember one time I was at, I'll just give you this one example to show you how effective these uh, events are on campus. You know, there's, there's always that, um, you know, whenever there's uh, some sort of skirmish in Israel versus uh, Hamas, whether it's in Gaza or West Bank or from Lebanon or from Syria, uh, there's always this campus rivalry between the two groups, the pro-Israel groups, you know, the Hillel, the Chabad, whatever, what have you, and maybe the conservative groups get involved in that. And on the other side, you have the free Palestine and the uh, other such groups. Uh, I attended one year at UCI where they had um, Palestinian Holocaust Week. This, this term Holocaust has been so... Um, Again, freely thrown around, like, okay, Palestinian Holocaust Week. So I attended, and I see that on the main drag of, of campus, that main square where most students pass through, especially when classes change, um, they set up this bloody wall with, you know, Israeli flags, and it was, it was very visual. And you see the two groups basically quarreling, and this one screaming, and that one screaming. That's fine. What you see that's scarier than that is your average neutral-minded, when they enter school, right, whose mind is up for grabs, passing through, and then all of a sudden shaking their heads and thinking, yes, Israel is the aggressor, Israel is the terrorist, and these terrorists, Hamas is, is really the victim here. And when you see that, you see how vulnerable people on campus are. I mean, you in this auditorium, you're already an informed crowd. And I know that because you're here. So it's the minds of the people who are not informed and only get their information by, you know, a Facebook post, a tweet, something they see on campus, something they hear from a friend. So to answer your question in a, to summarize the answer to your question is, you have to inform people when you can, whether it's, it's bringing awareness to something that's going on on campus, something you hear in school. You know, my cousins always inform me when they something in their syllabus that's off the charts, you know. It's important. It's important to flag these things because for as long as professors can, it's, it's unfortunate. There's a liberal agenda in our universities. And why should there be a liberal agenda? You're teaching facts, or at least you should be. You leave up the discussion to the students. Your syllabus should have facts. So anytime you see any of this, I think it's important to bring attention to it. Any other questions? Can I just ask you what you, what you thought, um, you know, as a journalist, following this conference that the president, that the Obama administration has had this week on violent extremism? We've all seen the, the kind of uh, pushback in the media and the, the tweets and everything. But you know, if somebody as knowledgeable as you who studied the Middle East as you have, and being a reporter, um, how closely have you followed it, and what would you tell us um, as an observer of, of the conference? Yeah, what was, should we be aware it was of dis happened? It was disturbing. It was disturbing because it was, a f it was further distancing. It was, it, was a, it was a demonstration of how our, our administration is further distancing itself from the truth. Whether it truly believes what it's saying, I doubt. 
or the posture that it wants to maintain regarding these issues, and it's a very scary thing. It was, it was extremely, I mean, first of all, by the title of the conference, we already knew where this was going. Violent extremism. Starts out the talk with uh, Oklahoma City. I knew right then and there. I mean, I've done tons of interviews with people who say, well, there was Oklahoma City. Yes, you can name me one thing. Can I name you 20 in the last three days? I mean, this is how they conflate the talking points. And to have our president come to the podium and do the same thing, it's disturbing. It's disturbing for American citizens, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you fall on, because, again, counterterrorism, national security, human rights, no partisan agenda. If there should be another 9-11, no one's going to come through the crowd and pick through the liberals and the conservatives. We're all at risk. And, you know, if I, you know, I'm an Iranian. Many of our uh, friends, close friends, are Muslims, whether they're practicing Muslims, secular Muslims, nominally Muslim. They agree that we should be safe. They agree that there should not be another 9-11 here. And if this administration, this president, would take these threats more seriously, they would be, they would be safer. Muslims would have a better profile in this country. And that's what's the real bottom line here. Um, political correctness, I think, is costing the Muslim American community more so than really assuming that all Americans, if you're here geographically here, you want to be safe. And if you don't, you're free to leave. It's a one-way ticket out. And that should be made clear. You know, we have a president, very unfortunately, I guess this is my first generation lens. I was born, it's in my DNA, to feel blessed to live in this country, to feel blessed to be educated in this country, to feel blessed to work in this country, to be blessed to stand at this podium and address you. Because as a woman, I could wear what I want and stand here and address you and say what I want. I'm extremely cognizant of those rights. We have a president who is ashamed that he has those rights. We have a president who wants to apologize for having those rights, to apologize for the strength that this country has, to apologize for his role, to apologize that there even is order in this world, because we are all the same. And when you have that sort of ideology in the White House, our enemies know that it's free reign till 2016, and perhaps after that. But let's stay hopeful. <laughs> Lisa, maybe I can ask the last question, sure. um, and then we can talk informally during lunch. We were talking a little before uh, you began about your family, and uh, you were born here, mm -hmm. but maybe share, uh, I thought it was so interesting, when they left and how, and sure. your, your family's faith, and do you still have family there, and mm -hmm. do you go back? So um, my father came to New York in the 60s as a study abroad student. It's when the Shah was in Iran, and she, Iran was a wonderful place, and my mother used to dress like this, and um, thinking that he would eventually go back to Iran. Um, he met my mother on uh, winter break when he went back, and they dated for a bit, and she eventually came back to visit him, and basically she, when they got married, she moved to the States, and the idea or the plan was that they would um, stay until my father finished graduate school, and then they would move back to Iran. So in that time period, the Iranian Revolution happened, and all my family came out of Iran. Um, we happen to be uh, Iranian Jews, so we're, we're part of a, of a minority. 
Um, my family actually is, is unique in that they speak of very positive experiences under the Shah um, and the people of Iran uh, as, as Jews. I mean, all their friends were Muslim and there was no problem. It was a very um, secular type of, of, of society. As many Jews and Baha'is, even though there is this persecution, will tell you that the day-to-day -day with other Iranians is, is perfectly fine. Um, so I, I was born here with, um, again, knowing from the first day that I was born that I'm living in, you know, I'm almost a, a visitor here um, and very grateful for the opportunity to be here. Um, obviously, we spoke Farsi at home. I didn't speak English until, I don't know, until I went to school, kindergarten or first grade. But then I picked up, um, you know, reading and writing Farsi later on in my life. Uh, and, you know, I'm obviously fluent. I do political interviews in Farsi as well. It's very much a part of, of who I am and, and, and what I love about my culture. Um, but I think a few things shaped my career eventually. Um, and I think the two probably most important ones were the Iranian Revolution and 9-11. And interestingly enough, if you connect the dots on everything going on on the, the map right now, those two are probably the most important um, events in, in recent history that are shaping what's going on. You look at what Iran is responsible for on the map and in terms of funding terror and um, eventually getting a nuclear bomb if they don't have one already. And you look at 9-11 as the coming of age in this country um, to, to what the real threats are out there. So um, I actually was uh, headed for medical school and then law school and then 9-11 um, really did shape a lot of my career decisions. And Last question. Sure. Do you have any hope for an Iran that had elements was when the Shah was there, an Iran you would mm. want to live in? Do you have any hope it's for interesting. that? It's interesting. But beneath the surface, um, Iran is perhaps more secular, more godless, more um, pop culture crazed than it was in the 70s under the Shah. But it's under the surface, yeah. right? And we were discussing this before, where the the, um, there, there was a baby boom in Iran um, during the Iran-Iraq war. Khomeini came to power in the 80s and was like, you have to have babies. That's your contribution to Islam because all these young Iranians are being martyred in Iraq. So there's a baby boom. And now 65 to 70% of an 85 or 80 million population of Iranians is under the age of 35, meaning they only know life under this regime, meaning they've learned how to get by under this regime. They've learned how to cover their hair, but it starts here, so you can still see the bangs, and you can still see the makeup, and they get plenty of plastic surgery, and there's drugs, and all of that. Um, do I think there will be re regime change? I was hopeful in 2009, mm -hmm. and still to this moment, I think it was probably the biggest foreign policy disaster, mistake, dropping of the ball that this administration is responsible for. Um, awful, awful. It would have really changed the, the geopolitical everything, all the dynamic of the region um, had we supported that the way that Carter wanted. You know, people say, well, we're not responsible for what goes on in Iran. Well, Carter had a big, big role in removing the Shah. Obama could have had a big role in removing this regime, but he's more concerned with making nice with them, and we're about to do that at any cost. Um, so with regards to reform in Iran, though, I think eventually this generation of mullahs and ayatollahs will die out and their children are already abroad getting, you know, driving Porsches and, you know, getting 
you know, the Western education. So will they keep this regime in place? Probably, because it allows them to do what they want to do beneath the surface. Um, but there will be a reform of sorts because this, the next generation is more secular. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure. We have some good stories. Oh.